You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join your hosts Anne and Kevin the second Friday of every month on The Sewer Show between 5.30 and 6.30pm here on 3CR Community Radio. This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions for the unemployed and underemployed. Everyone in our community has value. Hi Anne, today it's Friday the 10th of July. The, the June sponsorship thing has finished. However, uh, we'll still take your money. So if it's July and you'd like to donate. <laughs> the colour of the money is still the same. Thank you again to Jacob for his Friday rave. Do you know, he, he does his rave every Friday, Anne. Mm-hmm. I think he's a natural. We go to a lot of work to put our shows on and we struggle between the two of us to get a show out every two weeks. He's keeping up to date, isn't he? It's amazing. He is. Hey, guess what uh, happened to me this week, Anne? Oh, do tell. It won't be, you'll never guess. No, I won't. I got my copy of um, Stephanie Kelton's The Deficit Myth. Oh. I'm so jealous. Which I've been reading. Now, for the listeners who don't know, Stephanie Kelton is a political and economic advisor to Bernie Sanders. She's very progressive in her politics and her economics, and she's obviously a big student of Bill Mitchell and Warren Mosler mm-hmm. uh, because she refers back to uh, Warren. She refers to Warren quite a lot, but she um, she leaves, tends to leave Bill out a bit. I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> but you can't speak about modern monetary theory or the job guarantee unless you talk about Bill Mitchell. Yes. Uh, because this is all his work. Anyway, so I've been reading The Deficit Myth by Stephanie Kelton, which is an easy-to-understand description of modern monetary theory and an alternative way of running the economy which is just so relevant to current world circumstances. There's, there's a serious chance that this line of economic thinking may have a fundamental shift in the way we operate as an economic society. So it's kind of exciting. Do you feel like we're at a pivotal moment, Kevin, somehow in the in the history of how nations run their economies? My oath, and because... When you have economic crises such as this, which is, uh, we refer back to the oil shock of the 1970s, uh, there was an economic void. And so the neoliberals slipped in and they started with this me first. Uh, Everybody needs to maximise their economic potential, which is uh, code for uh, greed is good. And we've been running our economy along uh, along those lines ever since the last 40 years. And sacrificing the unemployed to inflation control, which is a very questionable exercise. This whole theory was that um, if you sacrifice a portion of your population and put them in poverty uh, through unemployment, it will help keep inflation down. Yeah, and they slipped that one in on the back of the 1970s inflation. Yeah, and so (laughs) new theories step in. And this job guarantee that uh, we've talked about often uh, is the antidote to the current economic crisis. So that's a bit exciting. Read the book. Well, Stephanie's book is not just the great timing. It is that she makes for really accessible reading. I have to say I've been looking into this economic stuff for maybe almost two years now and I can still listen to some of what the top economists say and I have to hit the pause button all the time. It's a well-written book. Is it too American? Uh, Look, it is quite American, but... um, uh, the Australian economy mimics the American economy in many respects. Mm-hmm. So they, they refer to different institutions, but when I read it, I can transfer those institutions to the Australian equivalents. The Federal Reserve is the central bank. You know, so you just change Federal Reserve for RBA and everything sort of makes sense. But uh, what's on the show for this week, Anne? What are we, what are we doing? We're kind of taking a little bit of a a journey back to the roots of the Australian Unemployed Workers Union because we're actually going to look in detail at the job active employment services industry through the eyes of one of the researchers who is looking into this in depth. So that would be David O'Halloran, who we spoke to back in February and also just last week. You interviewed David just before the COVID thing happened, and we're now going to pull both of those interviews together. Shall we um, throw to the interview? We welcome back to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, David O'Halloran, who is a PhD student at the School of Primary Healthcare at Monash University. So it's great to be able to speak with you again, David. You're welcome. You and I had a conversation back in February when you had just reached the end of a round of interviews with unemployed workers. 
And of course, we were rudely interrupted by the COVID-19 pandemic. But now I think it's time to have a look at the area that's your special area of research. Yes, my area of interest is employment services and in particular, what goes on in that exchange between an unemployed worker and their provider, the dynamic between the two things. I would be guessing that a lot of our listeners have sat in on that particular exchange and those interactions in the role of the unemployed worker who is required in order to get payments to participate in interactions with employment service providers. So Australia is fairly unique in the OECD in that all of our employment services are contracted out to private providers. So in other countries, the government still runs some employment services like Australia did when we had things like the CES and the CRS. Australia has gone down the track of marketising those services, that is contracting them out to private providers. We have been doing that for longer than any country in the world. One of the things that I really appreciated from our earlier interview is that I really appreciated the way you're able to articulate those dynamics that happen in those otherwise unobserved conversations between an employment service provider and an unemployed worker. I myself went through that experience for a couple of years while I was long-term unemployed. And I get really tongue-tied when I try to explain to people what it's like to be on Newstart and having to go to these appointments, what I often end up is just saying, you just don't know how bad it is until you've gone through it. You have to go through it to understand how bad it is. But you are one of the people out there who's going to help us describe that. Mm. And so what we might do is flip now to our conversation when you were describing these phenomenon with these fascinating names, parking and creaming. And then we'll come back and uh, talk to you about how that's looking now uh, as you've looked at that research. Sounds good. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. Thank you for coming on to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, David. Thank you. So I'll just uh, let listeners know first up that you are a PhD student at the School of Primary Healthcare at Monash University mm-hmm. and that your special area of interest is Australian Employment Services. And so, David, you've got a very interesting project going on in collaboration with the Australian Unemployed Workers' Union. You've been asking current and former unemployed workers about their experiences of parking or creaming in Job Active and Disability Employment Services, or DES, Before I ask you about this project, for any listeners who don't know what Job Active or the DES are, could you briefly describe those programs? Sure. Those two programs are a contract between private and not-for-profit organisations and the Australian government to provide employment services to unemployed Australians. And providers get a contract with the government which lasts between three and five years and then those contracts are renewed over time. The current contract is called Job Active. So that's the privatised aspect of uh, unemployment service in Australia. You know, I love this terminology, parking and creaming, and I won't tell you where my mind goes when I hear those two set together, but could you explain for our listeners uh, what each of those might be? So parking and creaming have had a lot of attention in the research on employment services around the world in the last few years. And the terms refer to, in the case of parking, that means service providers minimising services for unemployed workers because they're judged as being too hard or unlikely to find work. Creaming is the opposite of that, and that is that the providers have decided that someone is very easy to help or judged very likely to find work, and so they will get a lot of additional services. But to date, no one's actually asked unemployed workers what that experience is like. 
So what we've got with parking is an underservice of people more in need and with creaming we've got an overservice of people less in need. Overservicing of people too easy to help, yes. And obviously these are fairly common practices and in fact I hadn't realised they're worldwide. Yeah, um, and in fact one of the interesting um, bits of feedback from the focus groups I've just been running is people were surprised that it was even a thing, particularly parking. Most people that I spoke to thought well, that's just normal practice, isn't it? Um, they they were a bit stunned that there was such a phenomenon. Can you give us a picture of this overall research project that this latest round of focus groups and questions falls within? My original question started many years ago, which looked at why people don't go to employment service appointments. Every year about 4 million appointments are missed in Australian employment services, which seems like a lot of appointments. So that started a long investigation as to what was going on with Australian employment services. The conclusions I've been coming to are that people don't go to employment services because they don't find them terribly useful, but also the experience of going to employment services can be fairly damaging and not attending is kind of a form of self-protection. Australian employment services are both useless and damaging, which is a bit of a shame given as a country we're spending $1.3 billion per year on them. What this research hopes to do is come to some recommendations to how we can improve Australian employment services. Let's have a look at the actual project that you're currently running. So could you describe more about what stage you're at with it and the kind of response you got for your call-out for participants? So I started with three questions, which was first, what kind of experiences tell unemployed workers that they've been parked or creamed? The second was, what's the effect of being parked or being creamed? And the third question was, well, what mechanisms do unemployed workers think could be used to stop the practices of parking and creaming? So I've been going around Australia asking people about their experiences. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Are you seeing any patterns at this point? So the first question, you know, what experiences tell people that they've been parked or creamed? What was interesting was that the concept of parking was familiar to pretty much every participant, even if they didn't know the term. So some had even invented their own terms like warehousing or shelving or... something. great. Um, And most participants thought they had been parked, sometimes even for years, but in this latest round of focus groups, people were surprised that it was even considered a a specific thing when they thought it was the default practice. Like one guy said, you know, isn't everyone parked? I mean, we're all either too old or too young or too disabled or not disabled enough or too qualified or too unskilled or too something for them to be able to do anything. And the things that told people that they'd been parked was this almost implicit and sometimes even an explicit arrangement between themselves and their caseworker about being parked. You know, appointments would be very infrequent and only by phone or very cursory if they're face-to-face. And this was more common, particularly by older unemployed workers. But that arrangement was highly vulnerable. So, for example, if you had a change of caseworker or a change of service site manager, that arrangement could end with very little warning and participants could suddenly find themselves having to do unachievable or unsuitable activities or things that were across purposes with whatever they'd agreed to do previously. Given the ratio of positions, vacant positions to unemployed workers, and given that uh, employment services uh, have notoriously unhelpful services, I can see it would be to the benefit of both parties, this parking arrangement. You know, I'll leave you alone if you leave me alone sort of thing. But it wasn't simply a quantitative thing. It was also a a qualitative thing. So the sense of being parked could happen even if there's frequent appointments. 
So pointless appointments could, is this kind of a form of parking. You know, you're going to an appointment where nothing is actually happening. It gives the illusion of servicing, but nothing actually happens as a result of the appointment. Most of the literature kind of sees parking as a, as a purely quantitative thing, like you just don't get seen. Whereas people's experience is, well, you know, parking can actually happen even when you are being seen. Now, on the contrary, some people were able to, to describe that experience of being creamed. And that was often because they'd found a job themselves. You know, they told their consultant they'd found a job and suddenly they were all over them with offers of help, like, can we buy your clothes and stuff? Whereas before that, the only time they'd been contacted was to hassle them. So people found that really frustrating and really um, probably a dominant response to it was anger. Coming to the second question, which was, you know, what's the effect of being parked? There are a couple of results. The first thing is that parking has a damaging effect, which is over and above the damaging effect of being unemployed. Being parked made people feel judged as being unemployable. Like there was one person who said, you know, too many employers think that if you're unemployed, then you must be unemployable. And after a while, you start to believe that yourself. But being parked means that your caseworker has also decided that you're unemployable. And these are the people that get all this money from the government to help you not believe that. In fact, they're doing the opposite. Particularly for older workers, they felt it was kind of like a repudiation of their working lives prior to being unemployed. If you're over 60, being parked means you're not given a chance to show what you can do. People with engineering degrees or, you know, advanced qualifications being told, well, you know, you're too hard to find a job or having to dumb down your resume, people found that really damaging. Interestingly, there was a counter-narrative to that. While people were unhappy about the experience of being parked, being parked enables people sometimes to... Um, just get on and do the range of activities that they want to do. Being parked creates kind of a, a sanctuary where people can kind of regroup and focus on important things like their health and well-being to recover their own mental health, seek treatment, get involved with their community or even find a job. That sense of being parked was always overlain with a sense this could change at any moment. Change of caseworker or a change of organisations and this agreement, whether it's explicit or implicit, could disappear. For myself, my own experience yeah. with, with Job Active was the unknown. <laughs> yes. I used to go to every appointment thinking, I don't know what they're going to hit me with today. Yes, which kind of reinforces that sense of living in the present. When you live in the present, then it's difficult to make long-term plans. You take a very empathetic approach and then you're able to really dig down into some of these, some of these dynamics that might not even be obvious to the person who's undergoing them. Tombs of dreams past Wealth gone to was uh, Jen Clower with her song Regional Echo. Everybody knows Jen Clower. She's another great local girl. Now, before that, we were speaking with David O'Halloran about parking and creaming in the employment services. Great names, aren't they? I think of an old 1950s drive-in movie. Yeah. When well, I they are the very, very 1950s terms. I had that kind of experience. Um, I was unemployed in Mudgee uh, around about 2012 mm -hmm. or thereabouts. Went back on to unemployment benefits for the first time in a while. And it was very different to my experience in 1981 when I first went on the dole as an 18-year-old. When you went to DSS right next door, there was always a CES, the Commonwealth Employment Service. And you'd go into the CES and have a look through the job boards. You'd have a look and there'd be something like unpacking a truck or... Uh, you know, labourer, and you'd go and ring the number and you'd start work the next morning. It was very direct and very simple. I 
remember those little cards. And the only place you see them anymore is in the Lost and Found, and sometimes the Woolworths will have that wall, and you know someone's selling puppies or something. Yeah. <laughs> but the CS was like a wall of cards like that. It was run by the government. It wasn't subcontracted out. There were no financial incentives for the service providers to string you along. It was pretty direct and upfront, wasn't it? I found it a lot more honest and a lot more effective. Yeah, one of the things I, I noticed when I was uh, volunteering with the Australian Unemployed Workers Union was that we'd have a few grey heads show up, a few people probably in their 50s and 60s, and all of them could remember the same thing. And that's why they were getting involved and getting active around the employment services stuff because they could remember in their own lifetime having a completely different experience of the employment services system when it was government-run versus when they started contracting it out into organisations. Okay, and should we have a bit more of a listen to, to David O'Halloran? So tell me, David, where are you at at the moment with your research? Okay, so what I've been doing since then, uh, we've done two large-scale surveys of Australian unemployed workers about their experiences with the employment providers. One was a survey of about 700 unemployed workers, and the last one was a survey of about 250 unemployed workers. And I guess if I could make one rule about employment services going into the future, it would be that we start with the assumption that unemployed workers want high-quality employment services. Now, we know from a range of health and human services that when you systematically understand the end user's experience of a service, you can improve service delivery. And and ultimately, that's what we want to do. And we know this from medical clinics. We know it from hospitals. So what you're saying is that you still see a role for employment services. Yeah. And I guess the clear message we get from people is not that they don't want help, but they want the help to work. This system is not working for them. It's failing them. When you said we're going to start with the assumption, I thought you were going to say the assumption that people actually do want to work because that's often not even the assumption. We're, we're all job snobs. Well, let's go one assumption further back. Yes, of course people want to work. We know that being unemployed is not a good experience for anyone. If you want to measure just about any measure of health and well-being, and you get a group of employed people and a group of unemployed people, the group of unemployed people are going to do worse on just about every measure you can come up with. So we know unemployment's not good for people. Let's just assume that people want to work. Let's just assume people want to have useful help in finding work. At the moment, the only rating system we've got or only external mechanism we've got for people to work out whether their provider's any good is what's known as the star rating system. Now, I talk to hundreds of unemployed workers and it's rare to find one that even knows what the system is or what their provider's star rating is. And the star rating system is really about contract management. It's the way the Department of Employment awards contracts to private providers. So they get more stars, they get their contract renewed. If they get lower stars, they don't get their contract renewed. And star ratings are basically worked out on what's known as employment outcomes, the number of clients that they've had that have got jobs. So they'll be really incentivised to meet those outcomes in order to get their ratings. Uh, they're incentivized to pick winners. The star rating system gets manipulated by providers and parking and creaming is clearly being driven by the star rating system. Instead of that system, what we need is a system to help unemployed workers judge the quality of a provider. We want to then give people free reign to use their market power to shop around for a provider that's genuinely going to help them. I suppose if you're marketising services, part of that would be having market power on the part of the consumer, which, of course, that power imbalance has been one of the underlying problems. We talk about monopolies, but employment services are what's known as a monopsy, and that is when there's only one customer. And at the moment, there's multiple providers, and the one customer is the Department of Employment. Now, we actually have lots of customers, and that is unemployed workers, but we don't allow unemployed workers to use their market power to make informed choice. So what we're looking at is developing a rating scale for unemployed workers to use. The rating scale has got to measure things that are important not to the provider, but what it's got to do is measure things that are important to the consumer. 
because this is a scale you want the consumer to use and to trust. Mm-hmm. How do you find out what's important to unemployed workers? Well, we've done all these surveys, and what we came up with were qualities of that interaction. And this comes back to the original thing about you know what's happening in these appointments. And we found seven things. Now, the first thing, and this kind of seems like it's common sense, is the appointment needs to be useful. Someone coming to a provider is coming for them to fix their problem, that is, find me a job, or help them to work out a way to fix it themselves, like help me become more employable. So to do that, providers need expertise, they need knowledge, they need experience. But if all they can offer is a bunch of things that their clients already know, or even worse, nothing at all, then you know what's the point of the appointment? This reminds me of one of my own experiences where I think I went backwards on the usefulness scale because I took my resume in innocently thinking that they were going to help me with it. And the fellow rearranged it a bit. And when I got home, I saw all these spelling mistakes and errors in it. And I was like, oh, no. I've had exactly the same experience. Um, this would be seven or eight years ago. And you, you're going to see the service providers. This was in a country town as well. And you're going, look, um, you know, I'm trying to find a job. I've been in the town for a couple of years. I know what my skill set is. Do you want me to tell you how to tell me how to get a job because you don't know what you're doing? <laughs> then I turned 50 and they left me right alone, so that was great. <laughs> so I know useful is is a really, really important quality, and it, it's such an obvious quality. It's the one our providers are doing not, not so very good at. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. Now, the second quality is that the appointment needs to be about you, the client. It needs to focus on your problems and the solutions on offer need to be relevant to those problems. Like if you go to your doctor and the doctor's only strategy is to refer you to a business partner that does, say, an expensive skincare course, you might begin to suspect that their motive is not necessarily about your best interests. The problems really need to be the client's actual problems. So client-centred is what we describe that quality as. The third thing is subsequent appointments need to be responsive to feedback. You know, how was that for you? So responsiveness to feedback is the third quality that is absolutely critical in these interactions. Now, the fourth thing is that whatever plan A happens to be, it needs to be reasonable. So the providers, they need to use their skills and experience to come up with a plan that's likely to work. There's no point in setting people up to fail. And we see too many job plans where people have been set up to fail. Would reasonable include how many job searches people are required to do? Absolutely. Because I'm thinking at the moment, 20 job searches would be pretty hopeless task. <laughs> well, especially if you live in a remote area where there's, what, two shops in the town and, and that's it. You know, I remember helping someone find a job a few years ago in a very rural place in Tasmania. There were two employers in the town and I spoke to both of them. Reasonable is based on the context, but also what's reasonable for you as an individual. Now, the fifth requires the provider to be fair. The failure to be fair has a more common name, and that's called bullying. The AUWU did a survey on Twitter just last week, and I think 500 people responded to it, and 80% of them reported that they had been bullied by their provider. What I often saw at the AUWU is people who had been bullied would then react to defend themselves with anger or shouting or whatever it was, and then they would end up even in a worse situation. The AUWU is looking at developing some resources specifically about bullying. I volunteer on the AUWU hotline, and that's a regular concern. People are being bullied by their provider. Some individual caseworkers give the impression of enjoying their power a bit too much. And there's a culture that either turns a blind eye or even supports it. And this is devastating for some of the most vulnerable people in our society. And it's also something that providers, and more importantly, the Department of Employment, could fix in a heartbeat. They could simply say, there is no place for bullies in employment services, and mean it, and then follow through. What we're asking people to do with their provider is to ask for a copy of their anti-bullying policy, which, of course, none of them will have. But I think we um, need to be asking the question, 
what's your policy on bullying here? Because I'm being bullied and I'd like to call it out. I don't know if you would agree with this, but I would want to be careful of looking at bullying as the few bad apples scenario because I do think the system almost encourages it. There's a culture that supports this. The system is unfair, but there are individuals still that take this a bit too far. Can you give us some examples? People who have been bowled out in a waiting area, people who have been told they're hopeless in a group setting, used as the bad example in a training group, things like that. You know, they're all outrageous behaviours and they happen regularly. Number six is, this is a complex one, and that's called trustworthy. In any human service interaction, there's a concept of what is known as asymmetric knowledge. That is, one party, usually the provider, knows more than the receiver. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. We, you know, we want, for example, that our doctor has more knowledge than we do. And the study of information asymmetry has been the subject of Nobel Prizes and whole research institutes set up for it. It's an economic theory. But one takeaway message is that the satisfactory management of information asymmetry requires trust. Otherwise, the two parties end up wasting a lot of time second-guessing each other, or worse. I'd say there's been generations of damage done now um, between unemployed people and the services. A simple start, in my experience, is to just agree to accept that what is said is what is meant. Other useful strategies include things like explaining things and doing what you say you're going to do. So trustworthiness is an important quality, and it's a, it's a slightly more intangible quality, but you know when it's not there. And then finally, what people want is rapport. You know, people will forgive an awful lot if they like you. And, you know, we're talking about a human service after all. But this comes way down on the list. Think about employment providers. We're really friendly, but we're useless. That's not a great strap line to offer. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. That's the stuff we've been exploring and, and discovering about this interaction between unemployed workers and their providers. And what we're hoping to do is now turn that into a rating scale, which will be available for people to go and rate their provider according to those qualities. And then people use that information as a consumer to make some choices about the providers that they're going to want to work with. So what you're describing is these are the seven qualities that came out of those interviews with those hundreds of people. And now out of that, you can translate that into a rating system of sorts, which sounds to me like the utopian vision of unemployment services. Because we're describing experience rather than satisfaction, we're describing about the things that we want to have happen. So it becomes a practical tool for providers to say, you know what, we're being rated really badly on trustworthiness, for example, and here are the experiences that tell people we're not trustworthy. So these are the things that we can do about it. If we come back to that assumption, we want ultimately to have useful, good quality services that unemployed workers can say, do you know what, I haven't got a job, but here's someone who can genuinely help me. I can't help contrasting that vision with how the government seems to be shifting towards a more digitised provision of service. So we're taking away that human face that you're talking about. So I'm just wondering how you see your work fitting into that movement by what the department's interested in. Where this is going to go with digitised services, that's that's the next research question. So thank you for that preview into where we where we take this. Because yes, this is about face-to-face services and face-to-face services will still remain even in a predominantly digitised approach. The department at the moment is just trialling a digital approach and they're trialling it with people who they determine to be digitally able and they're trialling that in parts of Adelaide and on the central coast of New South Wales. With the COVID-19 pandemic, also a whole bunch of new people coming into the system have had to be put into the digital trial simply because there aren't enough providers to accommodate 
the million or so extra people in the system in the space of a few weeks. So people who are new to the system are starting off in digital until the traditional system can accommodate them. Because the trials have only really just started, we don't know what people's experience has been like yet. So this is still fairly new. The default for almost all unemployed workers is still going to be the face-to-face interactions or over the phone with COVID-19, but the default for most people is still they'll have a provider. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. There seems to be a fundamental problem with this whole setup, though, Anne, because the service providers know that there's not enough jobs. The clients know that they haven't got jobs waiting for them. The government doesn't particularly care about improving service delivery because there's no service to deliver. So the system is set up to have a supply of unemployed to keep downward pressure on inflation. So what's the point of having a system that pretends that it's actually doing something? You do wonder, don't you, about what's the point of trying to improve a service when the whole thing is in a context that makes service provision a bit of a farce. But I was thinking about this after we were talking to David and I think the effect of creating a rating system like this will be uh, creating a place where unemployed workers can actually let each other know. They can actually communicate with each other about what they've discovered in their own experience about who's a better or worse employment service provider. So what you're saying is that it mightn't be used by the service providers themselves, but it could be used by like who would use this? Yeah, so I'm imagining it would be a great tool, for example, for the Unemployed Workers Union to publish this information. Um... Even if you end up finding that like all the service providers, you know, get zero out of ten, at least there will now be a public place where you can actually view what is the quality of service. So unemployed workers can say, well, this this agency is the least worst option. And then also all the policymakers, they won't be able to deny that there is actually a really valid criteria that David's worked up that is an objective criteria of what's going on. So I can see the validity of what he's doing. If you've got the information and the information is verifiable and accurate, it can be useful and it then has power. So like you say, there might be a range of agencies out there. Some might be complete crap. Some might just be a little bit crap. (laughs) And God forbid, one might even be okay. Um, If there's a rating system, who cares whether the service providers have got that uh, that system? If the client bases and if the unemployed workers union have this information, it can be then used uh, to Mm -hmm. their advantage. Yeah, so I don't see much hope yet for the government being interested, but you never know. It really is a weird dynamic because what you've got, as David was pointing out also, is that you've got the department on the one side and they've written this contract which essentially pressures and incentivizes the job agencies to behave in a certain way. So, for example, if they say, well, we're going to give you a nice payment because the person that went to see you got a job within six months. So then on the other side, the job agency is going to feel the pressure to get people into employment in six months. And so they're going to pass that pressure on to the unemployed person and try and get them into any job. They don't care what it is as long as it's in six months so they can get that payment. And they will resort to bullying unemployed workers. On the other hand, the department itself is increasingly divesting itself of the power to oversee the agency. So it keeps sort of saying, oh, it's out of our hands what's happening in those interactions. So what you end up with is this sort of I'm just following orders dynamic between the job agencies and the department. It's not even all care, no responsibility. It's no care, no responsibility. It's <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. And this is one of the things that the unemployed workers has talked about for a long time is that the industry needs an ombudsman, at least, <laughs> if not, you know, our own rating system. You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back a show all about the economics and experience of unemployment and underemployment here on 3CR Community Radio. Let's have more of a listen to what David has to say. 
might shift gears now just to talk about your experience on uh, working with the Australian Unemployed Workers Hotline. So they have a phone number that people can phone and it's an all-volunteer service. The entire organisation is volunteer-run. So I'd really like to hear more about just how that kind of service is operating out of the AUWU and what your experience has been in a volunteer capacity on the hotline. So the Unemployed Workers Union operates an advocacy team within it. And yes, we are all volunteers. Some of us are unemployed workers. Some of us are just people with an interest or knowledge of the employment system. And predominantly that has been through the 1800 number. Uh, People will phone up from 10 o'clock till 2 o'clock each weekday and a volunteer will try to answer their questions. But we've also noticed in the last year or two that more and more questions are coming through social media such as Facebook and Twitter. And so the advocacy team now has volunteers also providing support on Facebook and Twitter and the whole range of other social media things that I'm too old to understand. (laughs) The advantage of the social media approach, though, is that those answers are generally out there for everyone else to see. And so it kind of becomes a frequently asked question um, forum. Mm -hmm. Right. The hotline or the advocacy team is predominantly there to help people with issues to do with unemployment. But I would say that a significant proportion of questions, I don't know, maybe half, are questions about the Centrelink system. Now, we can answer basic Centrelink questions, but complicated Centrelink questions, that's not really our skill set. The Social Security Rights Network, which has a service in every state, and you can Google Social Security Rights Network to find out what your state-based service is, they run services that are more directed towards Social Security or or Centrelink-type inquiries. And so we will refer people to to that agency. So they're government-funded, is that right? Or at least partly government-funded, I imagine? They, They run on the smell of an oily rag. Um, But yes, they do get some funding. And so what do you see as your core area of expertise? So the core areas that the AUWU can provide information is around employment services and mutual obligations. So sometimes there'll be questions about people being bullied by their provider and we can provide um, advice about what to do with that. Some people are being told by their providers stuff that is clearly wrong and we can provide them with correct information to take back to their provider. Providers are required to explain to people their rights, but we know that that doesn't happen very often. And so a lot of the time we are explaining to people what their rights are, what their obligations are, and uh, if those things aren't being met. So those rights come out of the way the Job Active Deed is written. The Job Active Deed and also the Disability Employment Services deed, they describe what is allowed to happen, what's not allowed to happen, and we can wade our way through those several hundred pages to find the relevant section of the deed to explain to people, yes, that's supposed to happen, or no, that's not supposed to happen. What's the state of affairs with uh, mutual obligations at the moment? That seems a bit changeable, and people are getting quite confused. Well, it is highly changeable. And to be fair, the pandemic came upon us in a a sudden rush. And so policy was really being developed on a wet Wednesday afternoon for implementation the next day. And so it's not surprising that some policy has seemed a bit ad hoc because it is. You know, there's no perfect world where that, that would have been any different. And so... Things like mutual obligations have been changing and they are still changing. People have been told that they have mutual obligations, but there are no sanctions if they don't meet their mutual obligations. But that can change in a heartbeat. So David mentions that he services a hotline. Uh, That's the Unemployed Workers Union hotline. Anne, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So if people are wanting to phone the hotline, it's 1800 289848. What was that number again? (laughs) <laughs> I feel like I, I feel like I'm selling insurance. So that's one eight hundred two eight nine eight four eight. 
And the other way to get hold of the advice lines from the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, just go to Twitter and type in AUWU and they'll come up or go to Facebook and you can type in Australian Unemployed Workers Union and they're very recognisable with their yellow badges, those round yellow circles. Excellent. Well, uh, let's throw back to the interview we had with David. So let's hear some more from David O'Halloran. One of the things that both Kevin and I are very interested in in terms of solutions to the unemployment situation is a thing called the job guarantee. And that's where you're guaranteeing everyone a job. And in that scenario, one of the things I think about is how employment services would then act probably as a bridge into that program. So I'm just wondering what your sense of the validity or the role of the federal government guaranteeing everyone a job? In terms of supply side or demand side economic approaches to unemployment, at the moment we have a supply side model um, where the market tells us how the labour market works. The two big demand side approaches are what you've just described as a job guarantee and the other is a universal basic income. So those two approaches are demand side. And in a sense, it's interesting to reflect that the COVID experience has effectively been a universal basic income experiment for the last three months. We actually have a combination of, of UBI and job guarantee because the job keeper allowance, in effect, is a job guarantee. I think, Kevin, you and I are going to have to do a whole show on UBI and job guarantee and how those compare. Now, there was some interesting research that came out of ACOS, which asked people to describe their life since they had the increased income. Okay. And people were describing the things that they could afford and the choices that they didn't have to make, like treatment or food. So we know that... When you provide people with a basic income, their life improves. Mm -hmm. But the other bit that the ACOS survey didn't actually examine was the removal of mutual obligations, which is a feature of universal basic income and the impact that the removal of mutual obligations have on people's health and well-being. Mm -hmm. Now, the job guarantee is effectively a mutual obligation in that the obligation is work. And I guess if we're going to use a demand-side approach, then we have decided that work is the premium activity that people are involved with, whereas a universal basic income doesn't make that presupposition. It says, you know, we will supply you with an income. We will leave it up to you to decide what is the best use of your time. So there's slightly different approaches to to the management of of unemployment. Whether they would work politically, mm, I don't know, because, of course, a demand-side approach would work, and we know from history that they work. But politically, that's going to be a very different sell. The interesting thing with this whole situation at the moment, David, is that um, people are saying that this system could never work. And yet, as you said, it is working right now because this essentially is what's happening. We have probably closer to a model of a UBI rather than a job guarantee because we have a government guaranteeing uh, a supply of currency, regardless of how much effort they put in work-wise, just to keep the economy working. And it is working because the economy has not collapsed. So, so we actually have moved to demand-side approaches through force of the pandemic, and the world isn't collapsing. Well, climate change aside, the world isn't collapsing. Unfortunately, the days of Comrade Morrison, I think, <laughs> disappeared a little while ago, and we're starting to um, see a reversion back to some of the old tropes with employers saying that job keeper or job seeker allowance is stopping people from taking up poorly paid jobs in, in pubs in um, Western Australia and New South Wales, which are incidentally run by former members of the Liberal government. A little bit of a pattern of stories appearing in the media about how unemployed people, particularly young unemployed people, are so loving being on this great payment that they're not actually willing to go and work. 
And that's the tactic that they're using probably to get behind Poverty Day, which is <laughs> what the Australian Unemployed Workers Union is dubbing the 24th of September, which is the proposed day to roll back the job seeker and the job keeper. And so the Australian Unemployed Workers Union has released a media guide for journalists to help them understand when they might inadvertently be part of this demonising of unemployed people. And they point out, for example, this idea of rich kids living on welfare is just an impossibility because if rich kids are living with their rich parents, then they're probably not even eligible for the job seeker. And the other thing is that if all these young kids are living the high life on these welfare payments, the fact is that about 40% of the people on Job Seeker are over 45 years old. This is your workforce that's being shed right now through no fault of their own. So I think we're kind of being primed for a reversion to some of the old tropes. I love that. I'm going to have to think of Comrade Morrison <laughs> introducing the grand experiment of demand side solutions. Comrade Morrison left the building a while ago. Um, he, he, he's disappeared. <laughs> It's very interesting how quickly they adopt socialist principles to protect a capitalist framework when it's not working. This has shown that they can chuck money and make a difference. And people are saying, well, make that difference now. We've got other emergencies. Let's spend some of that money seriously to reorientate the economy for public good and in the public interest, rather than saying, let the market provide. My hope is that they'll be bold with pressure to do things that build a more people-centred and focused future. And, you know, that comes down to us. It comes down to the 3CR listeners, the, the ACF and Friends of the Earth members, the trade unionists. It comes down to everybody that makes a difference and puts in. We need to build on the community that's been developed in the last couple of months and build on some of the smart ideas for a cleaner future. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate... Go to 3cr.org.au. This is Bill Mitchell. You're listening to my favourite Melbourne radio station, 3CR, with Anne and Kev, Unemployed Workers Fightback Program. Great program. Great guests. What we're saying is that if you introduce a basic level of income, because a wage system has now evolved into something which includes the working poor, it undermines the underpayment system that we've entrenched over the last, particularly over the last 10 years, so that the poorest paying employers are going to complain because they have to come up to a level, which is a basic level. So people who are exploiting labour are going to complain about doubling job seeker and introducing job keeper because it undermines their underpayment system and they have to pay a fair wage. So India has the closest thing around to a job guarantee anywhere in the world. And what they have discovered is that if you effectively raise the reservation wage, what employers do is they complain about it to start with. But then what they do is they automate those jobs. And we've seen that already this week with, um, I think it's Woolworth saying they are going to automate a number of jobs. So so if you do go down the track of raising a reservation wage, you don't actually necessarily lift underpayment and you don't necessarily lift low-paying jobs what tends to happen instead is those jobs just get eliminated in favour of mechanisation. No, I have no problem with that. I'm actually not afraid of the robots taking our jobs. If a robot has to do a shit job, well, that's probably not a bad thing. But we just need to be mindful that the natural consequence of lifting reservation wages isn't necessarily a rise in minimum wage. It can end up with automation. If automation changes, takes as you say, takes away shit work. And, and I've actually worked in a, uh, a place that builds robots uh, as one <laughs> of my jobs. Uh, and I watched them construct a, a machine that made asparagus boxes. So they've got a, a group of people there making these little asparagus boxes and they designed this robot to, to do as, as well. And I sort of thought, well, that'd be a shit boring job sitting there making asparagus boxes all day. <laughs> now, if the government can redeploy those people who then become unemployed from making asparagus boxes into something else so that they're still 
uh, working and they're still earning a wage and they're hopefully doing something more interesting, then that's a good thing. If the minimum wage pushes the, the level of wages up and those people are redeployed to do something else, which is more interesting, does that mean that we're heading in a better direction? Well, that only means we're heading in a better direction if your labour market is relatively mobile. And we've seen plenty of examples where the Australian labour market isn't greatly agile. So you don't necessarily retrain um, people who get laid off from, say, the um, coal-powered fire station in the Latrobe Valley. They don't suddenly turn around and become robot engineers or baristas or, or whatever. So, so the immediate transferability to another area of the labour market isn't something that will just happen. So yes, if you get rid of shit jobs, that's fine. But the people who are capable of doing those shit jobs don't then just automatically become people capable of doing not shit jobs. That requires a lot more work. That requires a lot more planning and forethought, I imagine which is where your cautionary tale about automation is where you do want your planners to be thinking one step ahead of that. Job guarantee jobs by design have to be what's known as buffer jobs. They can't be too well paid because that distorts the labour market. They have to be able to be scaled up and scaled down depending on how your labour market is functioning at the time. So during a pandemic, for example, if we had just a job guarantee, you know, you'd have to be able to scale up a job guarantee in a weekend. And I just don't know that's the capacity to do that. And you then have to be able to scale it down as your economy goes through an upcycle. Yeah. These buffer, what's known as buffer stock jobs, are very rarely described explicitly. So we talk about these jobs in, in general terms, in that they're socially useful and flexible and so forth. And the few examples I've seen of buffer stock jobs described are things like aged care workers. Well, that's not buffer stock. That's an essential job. A lot of the jobs that I see described are in fact not buffer stock. They're essential jobs that should be paid properly. I think that's where a lot of people do get confused about the difference between expanding the public service, like aged care services, versus the buffer stock job. So high-quality jobs still exist in an environment where you have a, a UBI or a job guarantee. Neither of those systems would prevent you from finding a career because the bottom line is both of those opportunities only offer basic, either a basic job and therefore a basic income or basic income. It's basic. It's not, you know, you're not going to go to Rio on the kind of money you make <laughs> on a UBI or a job guarantee. And we've seen that in the pandemic, you know, just because people have got a bit more money through JobSeeker and JobKeeper, it has not made people live the high life. People on JobKeeper are still saying, when this runs out, they are going to fall off a cliff. Um, $1,500 a fortnight is not going to pay their mortgages and their car repayments and their school fees and, and whatever. So this statement that JobKeeper and JobSeeker are somehow killing people's motivation to work is a furphy because their level of income is still basic. It's not sufficient to um, fund a lifestyle to which we would all like to become accustomed. What you're saying is actually that these payments are not doing that thing that it seems like the neoliberals always like to talk about, which is disincentivizing workers. Which is interesting because in classic economic theory, work is still considered a disutility, um, except if you're unemployed, and then it's somehow virtuous. They get to have it both ways. Um, interesting uh, misunderstanding of classic economic theory. <laughs> Terrific, David. Thank you so much for being willing to talk about things that are a little bit outside your research area, as well as all the fascinating things that you're doing. And I'm sure we'll have you back on the show. Thanks, David. Thanks very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. You know what, Anne? It's interesting hearing uh, from David then, because we've been talking about things like the job guarantee and the universal basic income, the UBI and the JG. And he's letting us know that the job seeker program, which has now been expanded to $550 a week, is kind of like the universal basic income, 
which is a backstop where you where you're okay, and job keeper, which is at seven hundred and fifty dollars a week, which is about the minimum wage, has similarities with the job guarantee. So job seeker is the UBI, and job keeper is the job guarantee. These are modern macroeconomic ways of thinking which are being implemented right before our very eyes. Yeah, so far you and I have talked about the job keeper and the job seeker from the economic point of view of how the government that issues its own currency can just go spending as much as it wants as long as the resources are there to purchase, which they are because we've got a lot of unemployed labour at the moment. I hadn't even actually quite cottoned on to the idea that this is in fact almost like an experiment in a basic income, either as an income with or without the requirement to have a job. And I really am kind of curious if any of the researchers in the job guarantee area um, and any of the economists, whether they see it as an experiment like that. I'm pretty sure that they would say that this shows how doable it is to introduce a job guarantee. And the UBI, um, there's a little bit more question around that in terms of the macroeconomic side. So it certainly does deal with, you know, the issue of keeping the economy ticking over in terms of demand from workers, in terms of people spending, but not the macroeconomic implications in terms of inflation, um, which is where the UBI and the JG differ. Yeah, but so what we're saying is necessity is the mother of invention. So we've got a, a government a government who would be opposed completely to this kind of uh, economic uh, implementation if the circumstances weren't so. I'm completely enamoured with Comrade Morrison. I'm so sad that he went away so quickly. I really loved him while he was around. (laughs) Specifically, the job guarantee, it needs to be flexible. It needs to absorb unemployment from the private sector at stages like this. And it then needs to have that that employment buffer move back to the private sector when things pick up. So how how would you actually organise workers to come and go? Yeah, so David talked about this because his uh, reservation about the job guarantee is how amenable is it to being scaled up and down? And I, I think in this pandemic situation, we've probably seen one of the most extreme examples of a change of scale. We've seen the core unemployment rate double and the underemployment rate double essentially as well within weeks. So that shows you the extreme amount to which you need to be able to have this buffer stock grow. It has to be able to suddenly take on a million people and potentially over a year or two, those million people need to go back into the private workforce. So his reservation was, is the job guarantee capable of doing that? And my answer would be that In a way, yes, because if you say at the beginning, like we did already back in, when was it, March, if we say to a million people, your job now is to sit at home and not get sick with the COVID-19, we saw the government do that almost overnight with the JobKeeper and Seeker. So there's no reason why a job guarantee couldn't be that agile. There is still a question because we don't actually have a structure for when people can be out of being at home. We don't exactly yet have a structure for what they call those shovel ready projects. But there certainly is a potential structure there in, I think, in the form of local councils and non-profits that are already running programs. And so what you do is at the local level, you look to where those programs already exist and where they're already functioning really well and you look to the ones that say for example with the aged care and this was the other thing that David was talking about is he he feels like he never sees the job description for a job guaranteed job like it gets talked about in general terms like aged care well what does that really mean and it doesn't mean that you're the person supplying medication to to someone because you're not qualified it doesn't mean even that you're the person lifting someone in and out of a bed because you haven't been trained to do the lifting. But it could mean that you're doing the nice-to-have services that they've always wanted but could never really afford otherwise. And that might be just providing companionship to someone. Just assisting them, which is one of the constant complaints we hear from some of the poorly funded aged care facilities, is the neglect. So you Mm -hmm. eradicate the neglect by instituting a job guarantee. So long as that minimum level of service is still being provided to uh, whatever industry it was. It is kind of an interesting one to think about what kind of jobs they are because they have to be jobs that can disappear 
when your private sector picks up again, but you also want them to be jobs that are not just make work. So you want them to be jobs that, as they say, do provide a service in the community. And I'm thinking about other programs like uh, you know, planting trees, this, this whole environmental thing. You might have an area which wants to plant a million trees in two years or five years. But then if you have a, a period where there's a, a large amount of unemployed, you might reach that target earlier. Uh, so, mm. so it has flexibility. It can absorb people. And then once they're attracted back to the private sector, which is generally paying better wages, you can let them go again. So it's like everyone says, there's no shortage of things to be done. There's just a shortage of paid work. And so all the things that are not being done, some of them need to legitimately become part of a career path within, say, the public service or within a non-profit or whatever. And some of them are the nice-to-haves. Going back to our previous conversation, when I used to go to the CES, to the job board, you'd pick up a bit of work uh, and it might be uh, packing a truck or doing some labouring or something. And that's the immediate job that you get. But from that work, you would learn a skill. You might be unpacking a truck and then somebody might throw you a shifter to undo something and, and that leads to something else. And if you're good on the tools, then you, then you learn about using other tools, etc. And it can lead to other things. For instance, if you're in aged care, you might be there as an unskilled service provider you might be helping in the kitchen you might be a kitchen hand to help prepare some meals but you pick up some kitchen skills it might turn out that you like cooking and then from that you develop an interest and one thing leads to another you might speak to the chef you might know somebody else you might know somebody in a cafe it's this whole web of opportunity that arises from being involved in activity which you just don't get when you're unemployed that's a great example. It puts a, a concrete image to when people can't quite get their heads around what job guarantee work might look like. And yeah, well, that's what used to happen back in the 80s. When, when you go to the, down to the CES, you'd pick up an afternoon's work somewhere, but it, it invariably led on to something else because you're involved in the whole process. And so the job guarantee, I reckon, would have a very similar effect. But uh, this has been... A different show for us this weekend because um, normally we sit on our economic high horse <laughs> and pretend that we're very influential. But uh, this week we've got got down with the workers. We got <laughs> down with the unemployed workers, uh, who we sometimes are members of ourselves. Yeah, we got down and dirty with all those unemployed people. Well, as a lot of us have found out uh, just recently, unemployment can be just around the corner. And we'd love some feedback on the show. And if you can email us on radiommt at gmail.com, we'd love to hear from you. Anyway, we're going to make room for Mafalda. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Let's skedaddle. See you then. You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join us the second Friday of each and every month as part of The Sewer Show on 3CR. We thank all our guests, and I thank you, Kevin. And I thank you, Anne. The pleasure was all mine. Oh, no, I insist. The pleasure was mine. Well, it wasn't all yours. I mean, I had a fair degree of pleasure on this show. It was uh, very pleasurable for me. Oh, no, Kevin, I was highly pleasured. You looked like you are having fun, and it looked very pleasing to you, but uh, I'm just wondering whether I had more fun than you did. I had a lot of fun. It was very pleasurable. I have to say, it was amazing.